The House and Senate are both in session this week. The Senate will likely conclude its business Thursday, while the House is scheduled to be in through Friday. This week in the House, they'll return tomorrow with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up five bills under suspension of the rules. For the rest of the week, the House is scheduled to take up a still-as-yet-unnamed bill to make continuing appropriations for the 2022 fiscal year, which begins on October 1, which is just 12 days away. In other words, a continuing resolution. Further, the House Democrat leadership indicated at the end of last week that the House would also vote this week on a measure to suspend the debt ceiling to a date to be named later. More on that in a bit. In addition to the continuing resolution and the debt limit provision, the House will also take up H.R. 4350, the National Defense Authorization Act, and H.R. 3755, the Women's Health Protection Act of 2021. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Monday and immediately agreed to invoke cloture on the nomination of James Richard Caval to be Undersecretary of Education. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of David G. Estudillo to be U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Washington. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Angel Kelly to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Massachusetts. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Veronica S. Rossman to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. While he was pushing through judicial nominations, Majority Leader Schumer also used Rule 14 of the Senate rules to bypass the committees and bring straight to the floor S-2747, the absurdly named Freedom to Vote Act, also known as the latest incarnation of the Corrupt Politicians Act. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, they'll come back to work tomorrow, and they will resume consideration of the nomination of Margaret Iron Strickland to be a U.S. District Judge for the District of New Mexico. At 5.30 p.m., the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on that nomination. Later in the week, at a time to be determined, the Senate will likely consider a motion to invoke cloture on a motion to proceed to S-2747, the so-called Freedom to Vote Act. I expect that will not garner the 60 votes needed to close debate. Now, budget reconciliation. What exactly is it anyway? So, what is it that we mean when we talk about budget reconciliation anyway? Well, it's a provision of law that was written back in the 1970s. Budget reconciliation is a process that allows the Senate to bypass the need for cloture to move a bill to a final passage vote. Instead of requiring 60 votes to shut off debate, a reconciliation measure cannot be filibustered, so it only needs 51 votes to pass. That makes it very attractive to a majority party when it wants to pass something that it knows is unlikely to find enough support from the opposition party to get to the 60 votes required to defeat a filibuster and end debate. Key parts of Obamacare were passed under reconciliation, as was the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act. There's a two-step process involved. First, both houses need to pass a budget resolution that provides an outline of budgetary goals. The budget resolution just has top-line numbers in it and vague programmatic language, but no details. It instructs each of the relevant committees to find ways to save or spend certain dollar amounts. The House Ways and Means Committee, for instance, might be instructed to change the tax code to generate an additional $1 trillion over the next 10 years. In the Senate, the process of considering a budget resolution includes an opportunity for unlimited amendment. This is called the Votorama, and it can last all night. 
few weeks ago when the budget resolution was considered in the Senate, there were 40 roll call votes required to get through all the amendments that were offered, and it took them until after 4 a.m. in the morning to deal with them all. Also in the Senate, every provision included in the reconciliation bill must pass muster against what's called the Byrd Rule, named after the late Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia. The Byrd Rule is actually a series of tests designed to ensure that only significant budgetary matters are considered under these special rules. For instance, back in the spring, when the Democrats used the reconciliation process to pass their $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package, they wanted to include in it a provision that would raise the minimum wage to $15 per hour. But the Senate parliamentarian balked and rejected it declaring that while it was true that raising the minimum wage would have an effect on federal spending, having an effect on federal spending was not the primary purpose of the provision. Raising the minimum wage was, and therefore it could not be included in the reconciliation bill. Once each house passes an identically worded budget resolution, the relevant committees go off and write the legislative language to meet their instructions. The budget committees then take all that language and wrestle it together into a giant bill. That bill reconciles the broad goals of the budget resolution with the more detailed implementing legislation. Once each house passes an identically worded bill, it goes to the White House for the president's signature, and when he signs it, it becomes law. Now, to consideration of this particular budget reconciliation bill. So, how do you write a big, big, big bill? a bill that encompasses in a way no one has really talked about virtually the entire legislative agenda of a presidential administration and do so in a Congress that's virtually evenly split. Before we go any further, take a moment to stop and think about that. Twice in our history, we've had Democrat presidents who enjoyed massive majorities in both houses of Congress, and they use those majorities to enact major growth in the size and scope of the federal government. First, with what Franklin Delano Roosevelt called the New Deal, then with what Lyndon Baines Johnson called the Great Society. In the 1930s and 1940s, Roosevelt won four straight presidential elections and served more than 12 years as president. During his first three terms, from 1933 to 1939, by terms I mean actually two-year cycles, during his first three two-year cycles, from 1933 to 1939, when the bulk of the New Deal was enacted, he never had fewer than 322 Democrats in the House. He never had fewer than 59 Democrats in the Senate. In fact, after his 1936 reelection campaign, he had 334 Democrats in the House against just 88 Republicans. And in the Senate, the Democrat majority was 76 to 16. It's relatively easy to see how the New Deal legislative agenda was passed. It took several years, but with majorities like those, that was a legislative train that just wasn't going to be stopped. That led to overreach. And that led to a Supreme Court that struck down a number of the laws that were enacted, which is what led Roosevelt to try to pack the court after his 1936 reelection. Almost three decades later, Johnson, who ascended to the presidency after the assassination of John F. Kennedy in November of 1963, enjoyed similarly large Democrat majorities in both House and Senate. During his one full term following his election to the office in 1964, he never had fewer than 248 Democrats in the House, and he never had fewer than 64 Democrats in the Senate. Again, it's relatively easy to see how the Great Society legislative agenda was passed. It took Johnson several years, but he got most of what he wanted. But now look at Joe Biden. He enjoys literally no majority in the Senate, 
except the majority of one that's created when all Democrats vote one way and all Republicans vote the other way. And that creates a tie that the Constitution says can be broken by the vice president. And in the House, he's only got 220 Democrats, which means he can only afford to lose three votes on any measure. Yet he's acting as if he owns massive majorities like those owned by his predecessors, Roosevelt and Johnson. Worse, he's gone even far farther than they have in the breadth, the depth, the scope, the very ambition of his legislative agenda. It took them years to get their legislative agenda through the Congress, and they did it by passing many pieces of legislation. He's trying to do more than what either one of them accomplished, and he's trying to do it in just one bill. Here's what he's trying to do in this one bill. Provide an amnesty for 8 million illegal immigrants. Rewrite labor law to gut right-to-work laws in more than two dozen states. Create an above-the-line deduction for union dues. Create a so-called civilian climate core, a direct ripoff of a Roosevelt New Deal idea. Expand Obamacare subsidies at a cost of $163 billion. Expand Medicare by adding dental, vision, and hearing coverage at a cost of $350 billion. Expand Medicaid by adding another 4 million or so people, overriding the state lawmakers and governors in about a dozen red states that decided repeatedly against expanding Medicaid under Obamacare at a cost of $400 billion. Launch the Green New Deal. Nearly double the size of the Internal Revenue Service. Create and fund a universal pre-kindergarten program for three and four-year-olds at a cost of $200 billion. Expand the child credit, the child tax credit, excuse me, at a cost of $1.6 trillion. Create and fund a new child care subsidy at a cost of $225 billion. Create and fund guaranteed paid family and medical leave at a cost of $225 billion. Create and fund a new program to provide two years of community college at a cost of $109 billion. They want to change the law to allow Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices. That might sound nice. Who doesn't want lower drug prices? But that'll kill the incentive for pharmaceutical companies to pay for the research that's necessary to create operation-saving and life-saving miracle drugs. Let's be clear. If this bill is enacted it will dramatically change the nature of the relationship between the individual American citizen and the federal government. If you're an individual who appreciates the liberty for which America is known, you'd have to enjoy it during your very first breaths. Because after that, Big Brother would be there to look over your shoulder from the cradle all the way to the grave. Let's be even more clear. This is stuff we wouldn't want even if it were free. Nevertheless, it's not free. And how would you pay for this? And yes, I chose those words deliberately. You will be paying for this. Essentially, by repealing the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act, by making the tax code even more progressive than it already is. Democrats want to raise the corporate tax from 21% to 26.5%. That's about a 25% increase in the corporate rate, and it would make our corporate rate higher than communist China's. Democrats want to raise the top individual tax rate from 37 to 39.6%. Democrats want to raise the capital gains tax rate from 238 to 28.3%. The changes to the tax code drafted last week by the House Ways and Means Committee would implement a roughly $2.9 trillion tax increase, the largest tax increase in American history. House and Senate committees of jurisdiction, 13 in the House, 12 in the Senate, 
worked last week to mark up their own individual provisions to meet the instructions they were given by the budget resolution that passed both houses of Congress in late August. Eight of the 12 Senate committees passed measures that matched the work of their House counterparts verbatim, which means they've done their work to their satisfaction. There are still differences between what the House committees and the Senate committees want in several areas, though, and that could become a larger problem than it usually is because of a relatively small group of so-called moderate House Democrats. These are the Democrats who held up passage of the budget resolution several weeks ago. As you will recall, they wanted Speaker Pelosi to bring the Senate-passed bipartisan infrastructure bill to the floor of the House before the House voted on the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. They did not get what they wanted, but they did get two promises out of Speaker Pelosi. They got her to say she would ensure that the House would vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill by September 27, which everybody talked about. And she promised them she would endeavor to ensure that the House and Senate committees engaged in what they're calling a pre-conference strategy to ensure that the House doesn't take up and vote on measures that simply won't pass the Senate, which a smaller number of people paid attention to at the time. The moderates don't want to be left hanging out there, having taken a dangerous vote to be good team players on legislative measures that won't even be considered in the Senate. Even though many of the moderates in this group are relatively new to the House, they've heard from the old bulls about the 1993 experience of being BTU'd, a reference to the 1993 vote on an energy tax increase that barely passed the House, but wasn't even taken up in the Senate. That one vote, it is believed, cost several House Democrats their seats in the 1994 midterm elections and helped make possible the historic GOP recapture of the House that year. So they got from Speaker Pelosi a promise that she would do what she could to see to it that they didn't have to vote on anything that wouldn't be taken up in the Senate because they can read newspapers and they've heard of these two Senate Democrats named Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. If Manchin and Cinema are to be believed, they will not vote for a bill that spends $3.5 trillion. And if they're not going to vote for a bill that big, reason the House moderates, why should they cast a vote for a dangerous bill that big? At some point this week, the House and Senate Budget Committees will pull all these disparate legislative provisions together. The leadership in both houses is trying to get this bill to the floor as soon as possible. Those plans may have just been thrown a curveball. As of this afternoon, Axios is reporting that Senator Manchin wants to push the vote on the reconciliation bill back all the way to next year. This is an extraordinarily important legislative battle. It is not a done deal. Do not believe for a second that just because Democrats control both houses of Congress and the White House, that this is a done deal. It's a massive piece of legislation that costs more than any single bill considered by the Congress, and it's got a ton of moving parts, any one of which could be the trigger to collapsing the entire structure. Now to that continuing resolution. The House will vote this week on a continuing resolution to keep the government funded through early December. We don't know right now whether it will be funded through December 3rd or December 10, but those are the two dates that were under discussion last week. In addition to keeping the government funded at current funding levels, that is the funding levels that were agreed to when Republicans controlled the Senate and the White House, the Biden White House has asked the congressional leadership to add about $20 billion to pay for natural disaster relief, Hurricane Ida relief, and resettlement costs of Afghan refugees and special immigrant visa holders. That measure will have to pass both houses and be sent to the president for his signature by September 30. Stay tuned. And now finally to the debt ceiling. Here's what we know. 
The House Democrat leadership is committed to holding a vote on a measure to suspend the debt ceiling sometime this week. Here's what we do not know. Will it be a freestanding bill or will it be attached to a must-pass bill like the continuing resolution? Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has been warning the Democrats for months that they should not expect to win a single Republican vote in the Senate on any measure to raise or suspend the debt ceiling. He's told them for months that they have the votes to do it via the reconciliation process, and therefore, they should add a measure raising the debt ceiling to the reconciliation bill. He reiterated that last week. Some Democrats suggested there, that maybe there was a sneaky way out of the pinch. Perhaps Republicans wouldn't filibuster a measure raising or suspending the debt ceiling. If they didn't filibuster, a motion to proceed to such a bill could pass on the strength of Vice President Harris's tie-breaking vote. And then it could pass on a similar tie broken by the Vice President Harris vote. But just as Democrats were beginning to talk about that as a possible way out, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas announced he would filibuster any measure raising or suspending the debt ceiling. So that plan crashed and burned. Stay tuned. And that's our Washington Report for this week.